0: Welcome to the Data Stack Show, where we talk with data engineers, data teams, data scientists, and the teams and people consuming data products.
1: I'm Eric Dodds. And I'm Kostas Pardalis. Join us each week as we explore the world of data and meet the people shaping it.
0: Okay, Steph from Avo is our guest today. And the question that I want to ask her is, which this won't surprise our listeners who've been around for a while, but it's about her background. She studied mathematics, did work in bioinformatics, and then went from bioinformatics into consumer mobile. And whenever I see sort of a, a progression like that, where there's a significant sort of change in you know the industry or business that you work in, it's just always fascinating to me how that happens. So that's what I'm that's my that's my main question I want, among many others, but that's the main one. How about you, Castus?
1: I'm really interested to learn from her about data quality. She has an amazing background and actually she started like super early trying to solve these problems. And this journey also ended up by building like AVO. So I really want to learn more about how she perceives data quality, why it's important, how it can be solved. And of course, learn more about how AVO addresses these issues and delivers value to uh, their customers. So that's from my side. I think we are going to enjoy this conversation with Steph a lot. I agree. Well,
0: let's, let's go chat. All right. We have a guest I'm really excited about, Steph from Avo. Thank you for joining the show, Steph.
2: Thank you for having me. Super excited to be here.
0: Yes. Yes. Well, so many things to talk about, but as our listeners know, I really love hearing about people's backgrounds and stories and what they did before they ended up doing what they're doing today. And your background is fascinating. So you studied mathematics I'd love to hear about you know hear about that journey and you did bioinformatics and then you jumped into consumer mobile and so I'm just fascinated to hear how did you go mathematics to bioinformatics makes more sense but bioinformatics to consumer mobile seems like a crazy jump and I just would love to hear that story. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, thanks for highlighting it. I guess maybe one interesting aspect that might explain it a little bit I I didn't only study mathematics. I actually did a double and I, I studied philosophy as well, which makes me extremely curious about people and helping helping other people answer questions and also just ask good questions. So, you know, that might explain a little bit about, sure. or yeah, like how I moved into also being curious about just user experiences and, and people, how they experience games and things like that. But Well, another aspect as well that I just highlighted recently in another interview, I, I moved, (laughs) I moved around a lot as a kid. I had very young parents, and I actually had moved around 30 times before I finished high school. Wow. Uh, And that also I think makes me extremely curious about people. So mm. I, I, I love asking questions. I'm extremely curious. I think people uh, describe me that way.
0: Um, what, one question I just have to ask. So mathematics and philosophy, you would generally think about those as completely separate, but since you were studying both at the same time, were there any commonalities that stuck out to you? In the two different disciplines?
2: Yeah, I love that you brought that up because yes, absolutely. They are surprisingly similar. I feel like the world is sort of split into two groups. The people who think it's obvious that you would study those two together. And then the people who think it's like, well, that's <laughs> really weird. <laughs> and, then, and then when you dig a little bit into it, both of them are very, I guess, logic oriented mathematics is rigorously logic oriented and has language to describe everything while and trains you up and really you know being logical and deducing logic and and you know finding the truth and philosophy does the same except it doesn't uh, does it via you know written language and you are trained into taking texts of very complex words and vague statements and translating them into what are the things that are the actual assumptions behind this? And is it true? And what are the first principles
0: Mm. behind
2: it? And so I thoroughly enjoyed both. But obviously also philosophy stretches a little bit into, you know, ethics and sure. and sort of thinking a little bit more about people and behavior and society and how we should build our society. And so mm. um, I, I really enjoyed that part of philosophy as well. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: it is. It is interesting now that you say it that way, and we can move on because I don't want to spend the entire time on this because i know we, we I have could. to talk we oh, i know i could too but we have to talk about data because we named the show the data stack show, so we're, it's a it's a legal requirement but it is interesting the concept of sort of having tools and mechanisms that you leverage in order to understand something or find a solution to something and that's the same with philosophy and mathematics
2: absolutely absolutely it's just extremely oriented towards sitting for long times and thinking about very short statements and digging into them and like figuring out what the hell is true behind them
0: so mm, yeah i love that well tell um, us about what did you do in consumer mobile so you took that background into consumer mobile and what specifically how are you applying your skill sets there
2: yeah yeah, yeah exactly i'll i'll go through them jump through from so I went from university to, well, first I traveled around Australia for half a year, which was amazing. And then I came back home and uh, to Iceland, I'm from Iceland, and applied for a couple of the sort of industry, which would probably be called, called startups, but to me were like just huge corporate organizations and one of them was a dna analysis company i guess called decode genetics where i had the opportunity to learn from amazing statisticians world-class statisticians that have released you know fundamental you know discoveries and statistics and imputation regarding how you calculate people's dna based on sample data or based on their familial information and things like that so in in that role, I, I did a lot of distributed computing, setting up, you know, all sorts of calculations and merging data sets again. And, but I also worked with the people over there that were like doctors and biologists and they were trying to, you know, their, their, their perspective was, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the mechanics of a physical trade of a human. And then it was my job to bring in the information about like how could maybe the DNA statistics and the data about their DNA have actually impacted that physical trait. So I was correlating physical traits with DNA mutations. And that was really fun. fun. Yeah, I love that. And so I was one of the few people in Iceland at that point in time that had really worked with huge data sets for reals and not just, you know, what you study in school or like, you know, I don't know, you, because you, you, you can train yourself in, in you know, writing software and working with big data sets but nothing really compares to actually you know having to go through the pain of fixing it in in reality oh sure and so, there's such
0: a big difference between stubbed out data for you know sort of learning and exercises and like real world data that's right. totally different exactly. game It's
2: totally, yeah, absolutely, and that jump was really educational for me. And I had sort of uh, started studying then bioinformatics after this job, and was actually had gotten offered a position doing PhD also in statistics slash bioinformatics in um, Oxford and also in Berkeley, which was really exciting. I I was excited to move to California as well. And then this mobile game called QuizUp blew up all of a sudden and reached 1 million users in its first week, which was the fastest growing app in the app store at the time. And the founders were Icelandic and I had some friends that were working in the company. And I was like, I can do a PhD whenever, but when will I have the opportunity to work with these really super Mm. fun people and building up a data team and like learning so many things about these people that are playing the game. And I can build like a recommendation algorithm for what quizzes you should play if you liked Harry Potter and, and things like that. So I got super excited about being, joining that team as a founding analyst. That was sort of the shift basically. So I was just like the Icelandic community type of thing. It's a small society and just for example, our the the, the coach of the national soccer team in, in soccer. He is also a dentist. <laughs> <laughs>
0: really?
2: Yeah, everyone does everything in Iceland. So that's I love that. So that that was the switch and that was sort of the backstory behind me joining this company, QuizUp. And we that this was 2013, and so that was super early product analytics. Like I don't think the the term even existed <laughs> at that point. Mm. And just a couple of developers had thrown to thrown together analytics events and using Mixpanel, if I remember correctly. And yeah, they were pretty early. Yeah, that's this was super early Mixpanel. This was like Mixpanel was still you know you know we had a bunch of people that were just placing like powered by mix panel on their website and mm. to get some free a- events. I don't think amplitude even existed at the point at this point in time segment yeah. maybe like just launched their famous like uh, hacker news point posts where they released like a wrapper around yeah. all of your analytics the was like
0: the, yeah those were, that was like the genesis that time period exactly.
2: So when you were googling stuff, well, like when I, there was, I was just like, "What is retention?" You say, "What? What? What, what does that mean?" <laughs> and you couldn't really find definitions of it. And so when the board was asking our CFO, who I reported to, about retention after every launch that we made and for every board meeting, I was like, "I don't know what they really want." Like you know, you have millions of definitions of retention that we could work off and you know I don't even know what the benchmark is I don't even know what what they would consider to be good what they would consider to be bad so I just spent my time at that point digging into data but you know most of the data was a, a terribly broken and in- inconsistent these few events that they threw together into mm. panels, so I sort of spent my time just hacking together scripts and you know you know making replicas of the operational databases which were like 16 shards of the user base in postgres hosted on AWS or something and it took maybe probably typically 2 weeks to answer some really basic question obviously that was not acceptable so we ended up fixing that problem by by basically throwing people at the problem. I started scaling up the data team, hiring more people so more people could be answering questions like these. But eventually, you know, or and while we were doing that, we were always, for every single feature release, we were begging the mobile developers to add, you know, specific events for some things and questions that, you know, the board always wanted to answer or the CFO or the CEO always wanted to answer. And it was so interesting, the dynamics, because we were in the position to have to report on these things, but we had absolutely no control over what data existed. Absolutely no control over that. But in some way, it was still our fault if we couldn't answer the questions, (laughs) which is a, a bit of a tricky situation to be in. Sure. So that was sort of the, the birth of my sort of, you know, how, how, how I evolved this role, which was really amazing and a great opportunity to be head of data science for this company, uh, because it was, I guess, a twofold role. I got the opportunity to really build the data culture, which is sort of, you know, getting people curious to use data to answer questions and, and go beyond their, their gut feeling. I say beyond because I know that gut feeling is extremely important in making product decisions and sort of you have to have some insights Mm. and sort of an understanding of the the customers and the users. But, you know, it's really important to be able to back it up with data. And it also just makes the buy-in from anyone on the company just stronger if you're able to do Mm. that. So just getting people curious to do that and basically doing some internal marketing on like, you know, hey, here are some cool things we know now because of data. What could you know? And, you know, having having regular meetings with, with everyone on the, you know, on, on, in all of the different departments in the company, trying to figure out what their needs were, trying to just like lobby, lobby for people using data. And that was really fun. So building up the data culture. So that was one aspect, data culture. And then the other aspect is just everything around the technical infrastructure of data. So mm. making sure our our we had the right tracking in place, making sure we were we had good quality of the data that we did have, making sure we had the infrastructure in place to both do, you know, self-serve analytics via tools like Amplitude and Mixpanel, but also extensive raw data analysis and building the infrastructure so that the data scientists were able to, mm. you know, we we built our own version control for Jupyter Notebooks because no tools existed at that point wow. to, to do that. But everything is already built around that today. So nobody sure. has, to, has to do that again. Yeah. <laughs> like we scraped ads SDK web pages to get some data from there because they didn't have their own APIs, mm. and we built out like Redshift clusters um, and pipelines to pipe the raw data from all of our all of our data sources into Redshift, which could have been done with Red with Segment today, obviously, or in Particle or any of the CDPs, stack, all of the amazing tools that now exist, but none of that existed then, and yeah. so, but yeah, so it was hugely it was like wonderful learning experience.
0: You were pioneering so many things.
2: It was fun, certainly. I yeah. learned a million things. So.
0: Well, I'm interested. So uh, one more question. I've been I have been very selfish with the time here, and I know Costas has so many questions to ask, and we want to hear about Avo. But one one more question, and I'll ask you to do the impossible task of distilling this down into just a couple quick lessons. But hearing about your experience pioneering tooling that you know, almost a decade ago didn't exist and now operating in a world where product analytics is table stakes for any software company you know, or sort of high performance software startup and there's so much infrastructure. I mean, that's a, that has been a tectonic shift to not only sort of live through but also have actively taken part in. So I'm just interested to know what are some of the you know the top maybe two things that stick out to you having seen and really been part of sort of pioneering that entire that entire shift in the data space.
2: Oh, that's a really good question. So obviously, I have made I have very strong opinions here. I guess loosely held because I love being questioned on them and having the opportunity to discuss them, because I I know that that I'm I'm I, there are just so many people that have amazing experiences and and just like if anyone is listening that has anything amazing to add to. What I'm about to say, I would really love to hear that. So reach out to me at, via Twitter or like my email or whatever. But I think there are probably two, things that, probably two things that are counterintuitive to anyone who is working in product analytics and is sort of fresh in product analytics and was very counterintuitive to me also when I started. And that is this, on, on one hand, I would say that less is more is that that is a sort of like a mm. counterintuitive thing. And that's also a very debated point of view, I would say, in data. But from my perspective, it's more important to choose fundamental parts of your sort of of the customer experience and understand mm. those, those points very well, rather than having like vague understandings of like, you know, a, I guess like a, a wider, wider set of Data. This is one of the things that I think matters a lot, and I, there are multiple reasons behind it. And I can I can definitely go deeper into them, and I would love to actually. But less is more. It's a counterintuitive one, and I think then the other one that I that I really fight for and and I'm very passionate about it myself is, and I have had the opportunity to see through in QuizUp, and then as a consultant after QuizUp, working with a few companies around the world and like just advising them what they should do next. And then obviously with our customers at AVO and that is, I have a deep passion for bringing data producers closer to data consumers. And when I say data producers in this context, of course, you know, I'm, I'm mostly thinking about customer experiences. And so that is often coined as product analytics And so the data producers of those are the the developers, the product developers that write the code within the applications, the web apps, the mobile apps, or sometimes the backend that actually get events into other systems, into Rudderstack, Segment, Mixpanel, Amplitude, Heap, Pendo, Firebase Analytics, your BigQuery instance, wherever you want to put your user experience event data, the producers are the developers that write the code in the product that triggers an event when the user does something. So those are the data producers. And the data consumers are the data analysts and the product managers that then use tools like Amplitude and Mixpanel or Firebase Analytics or Looker or Tableau or whatever to look at that data. And what I saw happening in QuizUp, for example, is the data producers and the data consumers were entirely separated. And Mm. I was just sharing this in the the story just before, which is I reported to the CFO and the CEO and the board of the, the board of directors, and I made reports for them. And their expectations was that I would be able to answer behavioral questions, but the product team had no obligation to sort of let me know when they were about to release something or or you know, ask me for, their, for, for input or feedback on how they should instrument some data or make sure the data existed. And that meant that when I was asked for information, I had just no, no way of answer, answering, answering those questions. And obviously, that was, I guess, a major driving force behind this in sort of bringing data producers closer to data, data consumers and was the driving factor behind working closely with the CTO of QuizUp and building tools and processes that added way closer collaboration with the product managers, the data scientists, and the product developers for every single feature release, in making sure we were really asking ourselves what was the goal of the feature before we even started implementing it, so that we would also be able to, you know, design what are the way, what are the metrics that we will use to measure the success of that feature so that we will then in the third section be able to actually make sure we have the data to to measure those metrics and my sort of so you know when we started that process the we had maybe one or two developers in the company that opened charts at some points in their sort of software development life cycle, opened up, you know, and and asked some questions. But after we sort of made this a fundamental part of the software development life cycle or the product development life cycle, I would say like 70% of the developers of the company, Mm. they started, you know, they started asking the questions and they would be posting on Slack, like, whoa, check this out. We just saw like, because they would know when the product was released and they would be like, just waiting, waiting mm. for amplitude data to trigger, trigger in or waiting for mixed model data. To trigger. And so they would just like go and look up their charts because they knew the definition of the metric because we had defined it together. So they would just be able to point and click a few, few things sure. and then open up the chart and share it with a team and ask some follow-up questions. And this again, like this... Change, bringing producers to, closer to consumers that really impacted the quality because all of a sudden the producers were consumers and they f- fundamentally understood how painful mm. it was themselves when the, the data didn't work yeah and it actually ties a little bit into the other sort of the other less is more angle as well which is you know if you think about data and from this perspective that you you plan it as a part of your product release cycle, you realize that it's never a good strategy to decide to track everything type of thing. Mm. Because you know, just like when you're releasing products, you just have to say no to things. It's really important to focus because you won't be able to do everything well. If you try to do everything, you will be able to do a lot of things really badly. And it's way better to, to measure a single thing really well and then have the opportunity to ask some follow-up questions rather than having you know, bad answers to a bunch of questions.
0: Love it. I could talk about both of those points all day, but I have to hand it over to Costas because I've been monopolizing the conversation.
1: (laughs) Thank you (laughs) very much.
0: Take it away. It's okay. okay. I
1: mean, you had an amazing conversation so far, so I really enjoyed (laughs) listening to what you were saying, both of you. Maybe we should arrange another recording where each one of us can impersonate a philosopher or something and have a discussion <laughs> in this way. Yeah, yeah, let's do that. I mean, let's make a recording with Geddel, Russell, Wittgenstein, like this kind of question, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it, it, it would be great. I
0: do have to say hearing a mathematician and philosopher say that your gut instinct is really important. I thought that was really cool. All
1: right, I'm officially done now. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, thank you. All right. I'm going to ask, uh, I'd like actually to start, Steph, by giving us a bit of more background around the company itself, AVO. I mean, we talked a lot about what happened early in your career and what made you to do the things you are doing today. But it would be great to learn a little bit more about the company itself. So can you share some more information about the company?
2: happy to. Yes. Well, I've given sort sort of a backstory, but basically, you know, the the tooling that we built at QuizUp, the tooling that me as head of data science and the CTO, who was at that point, sort of his background was in mobile development. His complaints were from the developers who hated how frustrating it was to, and time consuming and like inefficient it was to implement analytics events. And particularly how often it failed and how often I would have to go back to them and be like, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry you did this all wrong, and now I can't answer my questions. <laughs> and that was just so frustrating, and it was frustrating for everyone, obviously. Because like nobody, nobody likes. I mean, they, they they don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but they also don't want to disappoint. Like nobody wants to do that. Nobody wants to deliver something that you know is then in the end just useless. <laughs> and obviously, the board and the CEO and the CFO they wanted us to be able to answer questions. So we you know being two very passionate people me and the CTO we worked really closely together in building tools that automated a bunch of this stuff we built a central source of documentation for the the schemas basically that had event descriptions and the types of the properties and all that stuff and then we built like code generators so that it would just be super easy for android and ios developers to just you know, implement analytics events without having to think too much about it. All of the processes that we also built around this design part, the data design part, we called it purpose meetings at QuizUp, was this thing about, you know, setting goals and then deciding the metrics and then designing the events based on that. This originally was so that, you know, data scientists would be involved in this process from start to finish, and we would propose the event structures based on the needs of the data consumers. In the end though, as the data producers became closer to the data pr- consumers, we just saw this really clear shift where you know, w- you know, it was just about aligning on goals and maybe deciding together on the metrics, but in the end everyone just was self-serve designing the data. So the developers were designing the event structures based on, you know, the code base and the data, you know, like how the the data sort of best practices that we had in place at QuizUp, the naming conventions that we had, all those things. So eventually sort of what I would like to say is, you know, we transitioned from a centralized analyst, you know, I was the person that answered the questions to an attempt to have self-serve analytics where, you know, we wanted everyone to answer questions. But that was super throttled by lack of data literacy and lack of data quality. And so as we built out these processes of ensuring data literacy, even before the the feature was out, and then the tools to ensure the data quality before the feature was out, we basically also built like we built, we empowered our self-serve analytics by building the tools and processes for self-serve analytics governance. And that is something that then you know I started taking for granted. But fast forward a couple of years later, I Quizup had been acquired, and I had started a company with a couple of friends. And it was only about five months into that company where we actually shipped a product update that was based on incorrect data. And it was just like a punch in my gut. And I was like, oh my God, I'm back to back to like five years ago or whatever, and I will never be able to work in digital products because it's always gonna suck. And and I had this realization moment where, oh my God, you know, all the tools that we built at QuizUp, what are we gonna do without them? And you know, we're we're trying to take this product to market and it doesn't make sense for us to spend time on building those tools again. I can't believe it. And that's what I started sort of syncing with some of my colleagues from the industry, people from Spotify and Twitch and Airbnb. Turned out that we were super early at QuizUp in building these tools. We were building them in 2014, while like Spotify built a compatible thing in 2016. And I was like, what? I can't believe that. That's super cool. And that was sort of a trigger for us to really build Avo and start sort of bringing these solutions to the, the, the general business, the general digital product. And so that's the backstory, but the, the sort of what AVO does today is AVO is analytics governance as a service. We are here to pay down the analytics debt of Silicon Valley, which is like, that's, mm-hmm. there's a lot of debt going on. And we're here to really optimize this release process for the analytics workflow. And we're bringing data producers and data consumers t- together. With our product managers and developers and data scientists collaborate to plan and to validate and to implement their analytics for every single feature release. And it fits entirely with the sort of the Git product release workflow. We sort of were the, the like the pioneers for building a brand to workflow for your tracking plan which, you know, typically a lot of schema management tools have had versions, semantic versionings for, for your tracking plans or for your schemas. But that's something that's like scary if you're not a data engineer, basically. And our, our, one of our earliest learnings was, you know, we really need to support the data consumers well, and they're not necessarily data engineers. They can be product managers that, you know, effectively only understand what their goal is with the feature. But don't have a deep understanding in event structures and good event structures or semantic versioning. And so this is, this is our mission, analytics governance as a service, bringing self-serve analytics governance to empower really that shift to self-serve analytics, which is a fundamental piece for companies to succeed today, I would say.
1: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. Can you also tell us a little bit about, I mean, when the company was started, when you launched the first version uh, of the product, like your experience with the early traction, your experience with fundraising in this space. Uh, I think that would be amazing like for uh, people to hear about.
2: Yes, absolutely. happy to share a little bit about that. We We are very customer-centric as a group of people. So we care deeply about our customers. We like I was talking about earlier, like we, we have strong opinions in what we're doing. However, it's really important for us to confirm that with, by talking to our customers and and looking at the data for how, how, how they succeed. And that's how we have built the product from the beginning. We have had customers from effectively day one, when we started building our prototypes, we, we also got into YC, so we are a Y-combinator company, and that was because Gustav Alströmmer, who used to or was, I think the the one of the early growth persons, I guess, in Silicon Valley, he was a growth lead or a growth product manager, or product manager for growth. <laughs> there are all of these variations of the growth titles at Airbnb. So he, you know, did like was a fundamental piece in the in the growth strategy for Airbnb and he experienced this problem immensely. So when we did our Y Combinator interview, he was like, I've had that problem. (laughs) And so we did Y Combinator, which was of course an amazing adventure. And following that, we raised a funding round in Silicon Valley. Before that, we had also taken in some funding from Icelandic venture capitalists, but also angels that sort of supported us also because we're uh, you know where it was a team that had a lot of uh, I guess um, I'm lucky to be have been working with a great team in quizup obviously and so that was a reputation that we had built also in 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 Iceland and so even though this was a very pioneering idea at the time and nobody was talking about this uh, when we started doing this nobody <laughs> was talking about it and so but they sort of you know they 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 funded the team you know they 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 believed that we were a team that would be able to ship stuff and build stuff and so that's exciting because turns out they were right yay <laughs> and then after y combinator we uh raised around also from a company or a, or a fund called heavybit they are an accelerator and a fund for developer tools They were founded by James Lindenbaum, among other fantastic people, who was the founder of Heroku. And James's perspective on developer tooling has really helped a lot of fantastic developer tools go to market. For example, CircleCI, Stripe, just endless. Go check them out, heavybit.com. Fantastic group of people that have been really helpful. And then GGV Capital, fantastic partners there as well. They've funded giants. As well, such as Slack and our partner there, Glenn Solomon and Oren Younger, they are, they've are they just been immensely helpful as well. And the entire GTB Capital team as well. And I think they're, they're also very passionate about sort of both developer tooling and the data space. And so that was sort of the, their drive. They also work pretty closely with the Heavybit team often. So I guess that was sort of a, a hand-in-hand type of thing. And we're lucky to be working with these world-class backers of like, you know, developer tooling and and in the data space that have huge experiences in both sort of like uh, developer adoption and enterprise sales. And so I, you know, I, I have them in my inbox all the time and I'm able to ask them for advice. So I'm, I'm really fortunate and lucky about that.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. And I understand how you feel about feeling like fortunate, but I'm pretty sure that all these people got involved also because of the team and the passion that you have about solving the problem. So the reason that they are around is also because of you. I mean, you personally and the rest of the team. So congrats for that. That uh, says a lot about the quality of the team, the company and the product.
2: Thank you for that. That's, those are kind words. Thank you.
1: All right. So moving forward, let's uh, discuss a little bit more about the product so our audience can learn what AVO is about and how it works. And let's start by what's the value that someone gets from AVO today? I know you have touched this previously in the questions that both Eric and me asked, but yeah, let's try to make it like a little bit more more concrete uh, about the value proposition that AVO has as product.
2: Yeah, thank you. So Ultimately, we see a lot of our customers talk about how much developer time they save. Obviously, they save a lot of data quality, or like just they rescue their data quality and they start paying down their analytics debt. I I I would say, and that's the path for, for example, companies like RAPI, which is a huge Latin American company that is like a DoorDash and a, a Lyft slash Uber. Um, slash Instacart, all of those combined, basically just delivering whatever you need as a service. And obviously that exploded in sort of COVID and and March, April, and that is effectively sort of around the time when they reached out to us. Uh, And they had been trying to audit their data for Months they were they had been working on that the the BI team had been trying to sort of catch up on even just understanding what was currently wrong with their analytics before they wanted to then even also try to try to fix it. At the same time, the developers were just tearing their hair out because of the inefficiency of inefficiencies of implementing these analytics. So their journey was they installed Inspector, which is our sort of data observability product. You install the Inspector SDK to inspect and, and observe your current state of tracking ongoing. And that's how you get sort of your, you get a you get a snapshot of your your analytics depth there and are able to fully prioritize what is wrong with it today so that you can, or so you can prioritize what to fix, like prioritize the, the top things that you really need to work, like three, four, five events that you really want to make sure are okay. And then you can just like gradually step by step pay down your analytics event depth. So that's their first step. And then they, team by team, adopt the AVO workflow, as we call it. So the AVO workflow involves all of these stakeholders that I've talked about. The product manager comes into AVO, opens up a branch to plan the analytics alongside a feature release. The data scientist um, and the engineer, they sort of give it a review requests some changes potentially. The engineer from the perspective of like, yes, I can implement this analytics event in this format. And the, 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 the data scientist comes brings in sort of like the bird's eye overview of the, the company analytics. And is like, yeah, the, these analytics structures make sense in comparison with the rest of the company. Great, let's move on. And once that's been approved, that's the third step where the developer pulls generated code. We generate type-safe analytics functions we call them avo functions where you can implement using, you know, avo dot, you know, item added to cart or whatever. Instead of calling a generic analytics SDK where you have to pass in a string for the name of the event and then a huge object blob with like a name of properties and a bunch of property values. Instead of doing all of that, you just call a type safe avo function that you generated using your avo CLI based on the tracking plan, which is all defined in a user-friendly UI by the PM and the data person. And that's the third step. And then the fourth step is, you know, the developer, you know, treats the build just like they would for any other build. They just go through their product before they release the build, before they sort of release the feature update. And then they use the in-app AVO debuggers, where you have like a bubble that shows you when you're triggering the R-Analytics event. So you can confirm the timing is consistent across all of the platforms. You can confirm the data structures are exactly as you intended for them to be. The PMs and the analysts also love the in-app debuggers, and they use them even, you know, outside of the regular feature release process, because they can really get a full understanding of like what, what really is being tracked in the product. And so after that sort of is is sort of quickly checked off, the branch basically gets merged, the AVO branch, and that happens just at the same time as you bra- merge your Git branch, and your tracking plan update get out gets automatically published into whichever other source you need schemas in. So that could be your downstream, you know, your BigQuery table somewhere, or your your Redshift table, or your protofile or your amplitude govern or your segment protocols or your mix panel lexicon, just wherever you might need to manage your schema, you can then automatically publish that after the, the branch has been sort of finally reviewed and implemented and just ready for production. And that's when the, yeah, you know, then then just everything is just released. And like this this entire cycle, the workflow, it's shortening the the time that people spend on this by you know incredible amounts. So for example, Patreon, they reported, basically they are getting 90% of their time back that they used to spend on this. For every single feature l- release, they used to spend one to four days on this back and forth and like a QA process and syncing between iOS and web or whatever and data. And now they consistently use maybe like 30 to 60 minutes on it. And so that's obviously a huge time yeah. saving.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Actually, something that I want to add in what you said, uh, Steph, is that my feeling based on my experience so far is that the most successful B2B products, they deliver innovation in, in two directions at the same time. One is, of course, like the technology and the product itself and how it solves a technical problem, for example, in this case. But The other thing which is equally important, and not everyone is doing it, is that it's organizational innovation, as I would say, which means that it helps the company to reorganize around more efficient processes or automating processes. And I think that when you combine these two together, you have at the end like an amazing both value proposition for the company and the product but also you have a building an amazing mode for your company i'd i'd love to chat more about this i mean it's something that I'm a bit obsessed, to be honest, and something that I'm always trying to figure out. And there are some companies that they do that, like they did that, like Slack did that, Looker did that. Uh, that's exactly what the LookML plus the visualization layer was doing and creating like a very clear and efficient distinction between the people who do the, ma- the modeling of the data and the people who are consuming the data, like exactly what you're saying about the data producers and consumers. But anyway, that's that's a very big topic that we can keep discussing. Moving... We'll bring
2: it up in our Wittgenstein.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> uh, so, all right, moving forward, let's talk a little bit about the focus around the data that you have. I mean, like a company generates a lot of different types of data. I mean, from logs that might be consumed, like for security reasons, to clickstream data that are like actually described or like they are like breadcrumbs, let's say, of the customer behavior. It looks like you are focusing more on the second case. Like you, you are mainly working with product analytics and the clickstream data that customers are generating. Do you want to expand a little bit more on that? Like, why do you think that's more important, if it is more important? And what are your plans in general, like as you move forward with the product? Are do you plan, for example, like to support something else?
2: Yeah, these are really good questions. So I think the, the first part here is the why. Like, why are we focusing on customer data? Why are we focusing on product analytics? And the, from my perspective, I guess, like, obviously what impacted is I joined as an analyst applying for a role to report to the CFO. The CFO obviously thinks about finance and cares about finance, and that's really important to them. But at the same time, this was you know 2013 when you know companies like Zynga, Spotify, Facebook, these companies had just taken over the they were the the digital products, like right. They they were the the companies that have sort of showed us that we can have digital experiences solving things that we used to solve in person right games listening to music Airbnb another example where we used to call and book hotels but all of a sudden we had these really wonderful online experiences through going through a product going through an experience and just booking a place to stay and this shift was really going I mean it started like two thousand five, six, seven, when, you know, we started seeing all of the apps happening and like just more of the things that we needed to do as people, as humans, just it became more and more mainstream for us to be able to do that online as products, either on web or mobile. Obviously like software development has been around for a while and we had the .com boom, but this sort of shift really started happening at that point in time, I would say. We, we were going into digital products, digital experiences. So even I was even while I was reporting to the CFO their biggest problem wasn't financial data their biggest problem was really impacting like understanding and being able to report to the board of directors the leading indicators for the revenue because revenue I think most people have sort of agreed to in the space right now already Revenue is a lagging indicator. It's not a leading indicator for your success. While your customer experience can act as a really important leading indicator for your key performing indicator, which is typically revenue or some sort of other way of measuring that you are bringing value to your customers and that your business will continue to be able to thrive and sustain itself. And so I mean, that's obviously my background into this, and why you know i I thought that this was one of the most difficult things to report on was this experience analytics. So what we focus on at Avo is we basically focus on event based data. It's typically event data that describe user experiences because those are the things that really sort of are the leading indicators for companies' successes today, for digital product successes today. And I would say, today, if you're a company and you don't have a strategy for your digital presence or for your digital products, it's likely that you won't survive. And so I think this is just a fundamental piece of business strategies for right now already. And we'll see like the laggards just falling behind the train in the coming years if if they won't catch up and keep up. So that's really one of the really main drivers. And just to also to take an experience, ex- like an example, you know, one of our customers like Patreon, they've been with us for a long time. They were one of the sort of one of the earliest sort of like one of the earliest larger organizations to take a back- bet on us. And we have a fantastic relationship with them. They're fantastic. Maura and Jason and everyone over there at Patreon, it's been fantastic to work with them. And they know so many things about this space um, and, and, one of the things that Maura has already shared with me, she talked so much about this, like obviously revenue matters to them, but the performance of the user experience and the customer journey, that also matters a lot to the financial teams. And they already use that in their modeling to be able to sort of have some leading indicators for their success. So, and then if I tie this to like, how do we see this evolve for Alvo? I mean, there's no limit to what we can support customers in, you know fully structuring their event-based data however i think the biggest challenge and touching it like tying it back to what you were saying in like change management and organizational shifts and how people build their organizations and their their sort of focus i think that is really around like the customer experience so that's a deep passion for me in in helping people sort of do that better and so i think while we haven't fully solved that problem, we're going to focus on fully solving that problem, I would say.
1: That's, that's some great points, Steph. And yeah, I mean, I think we are going through a, like a major cultural change inside companies when it comes like to how data and KPIs and all that stuff are perceived. And I think it's going to be super interesting to see how these things will change in the next couple of years. One last question from my side, then I'll hand it to Eric. You mentioned at the beginning that one of the lessons learned for you was that when it comes to data, less is more at the end. Can you expand a little bit more on that? Because I think it's going to be super interesting.
2: Yes. So again, I think like what I mean by that, so... I touched on it a little bit before with like when I was talking about, you know, how important it is to bring data producers and data consumers closer together and sort of bring this whole process really into the product development lifecycle. What the mistakes that I've seen people do all over, like again and again and again, is when they decide to track everything, quote unquote. And, you know, this mandate can come from like, it can come from the developer that is just building the product and they have a mandate to add some analytics for it. And so they're like, Yeah, let's just track everything. It can also be something from like a, a data person or 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 a CFO type of person that really just doesn't understand or or isn't haven't they haven't just taken the time to think through what are the fundamental steps in the journey that we really need to understand the friction point for. So they give this mandate to track everything. And this is just the worst trap that I, that I see people go through. Again, because of the same reasons why we can't just build everything, right? So building everything, building, you know, building good products means focus. It means saying no to things. It's difficult to say no to things, but we really need to do it because if we don't, we will either never ship anything uh, because it just takes so long and we'll never have everything, anything ready or we will just do a lot of things really badly right Uh, they just won't work and they won't have a delightful experience and you know you know what it is today in building product is like delightful experiences are the fundamental piece in you succeeding in bringing your product to market so the same thing really applies to data like if you just try to track everything you won't have time to do it and you just won't you won't there's no such thing as tracking everything and instead what you'll end up with is like You'll track random the random things that you were able to squeeze in before you had to re- press the release button. And that's really bad because then you definitely, or it's highly unlikely that you have the most important things tracked if you go that route. It's really highly unlikely. And obviously here I'm talking about sort of custom tracking i'm talking about manually adding events and that brings me a little bit into the subject of like the auto tracking and i know Rudderstack supports auto tracking we have some fantastic products that do a lot of auto tracking like pendo and heap and Rudderstack and full sorry a bunch of auto tracking products the challenge behind this like i often like i often sometimes sometimes at least i recommend to like pms or 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 people who just don't have time yet to think about their data, I'm like, yeah, sure, go ahead, install this. Like, it's, it, 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 it might give you some insights and it's like a safety net. Uh, I understand that you'd rather have something than having nothing. However, it really just postpones the problem of really thinking through what is the information that you need to answer. It postpone it so that you will have to be digging through a lot of noisy data after the fact and it's really difficult for non-experts or even just like non-developers to understand what data they are looking at, because typically the, the data points are sort of like they, they're named after some IDs that the outer the tracker found through the DOM. And it's just, it's a, it's a lot of work to figure out what this means. And even if you do, it's not even guaranteed that you have the tracking that you need, because good analytics events, they typically have event properties and segmentations in place that you won't have automatically. And that's, that's that thing, like the designing good data structures. And so even if you, you know, go through the auto tracking process and you have your like safety net, it's just, it's going to be difficult to sift through it. It's like looking for a needle in a haystack. Certainly not the way to go if you want to build your self service analytics and, and sort of increase the company's trust in data and sort of their, 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 their trust in themselves to be able to go into a, a point-and-click UI and just like figure out what they want to enter. And also it's not even a guarantee. It's not even a safety net. It's not even a guarantee that you will have the information that you need. So these are my two hot takes, like um, tracking everything, the tracking everything perspective. So, and because this is really difficult to 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 do, like tracking a lot and tracking everything is really difficult to do. My general recommendation is just start small. Like if you haven't started adding tracking yet, choose three events and stop there. Like just absolutely stop there. And I know you want to track everything, but just stop there. Because it's way better to, to ship something and ship a small slice and be able to start building out that sort of like, oh, interesting. oh That was fun. It was fun how we were able to make a decision based on that rather than just like turning, like tracking into accidentally for two sprints you didn't ship any tracking because you just decided to track too much and you didn't really have time to finish it. So that that's a little bit on the sort of less is more perspective. I have way many way way, way more thoughts on that as well, but I think that sort of captures a couple of the essences of that, I think.
0: Well, unfortunately, I think we're close to time, but also I think we we Definitely wouldn't have enough time if I asked more questions, but I have many, many more. But we can save all of that for our philosophy role-playing episode, our special philosophy role-playing episode. I learned so much stuff. And I think the... I just think our listeners will really appreciate the lessons that you have brought us on this episode based on your vast experience. It's just really helpful. And I think there are lessons that apply to companies or data professionals that are just starting out and really large organizations. And I just always appreciate wisdom, that time-tested wisdom that's, that's sort of applicable to all of our listeners. So really, really appreciate you being on the show. Sounds like you're doing amazing things with Avo. So excited for you to continue there. And we'll, we'll schedule a time to have you back on the show in the next three or six months.
2: Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was super fun. I can't wait for our role play. (laughs)
0: Yes. (laughs) Okay. Thank you all. Well, that was an absolutely fascinating conversation. I think one of the things that really stuck out to me was how balanced of a perspective that Steph has. And I think the statement that just really, really stuck with me was she said this almost in passing, but she mentioned how important your sort of gut sense is in making decisions about a product and just hearing about her background and how much work she has done in data and data tooling, and just the sort of the, the massive amount of understanding and capability she's developed Yet she has just it seems to have such a mature intuition about about how to do things well, and not necessarily just get lost in the data or put that above absolutely everything else. So I just really appreciated the perspective. What was what was your big takeaway, Costas?
1: Well, we so for sure need to do this role playing with philosophers <laughs> role playing episode. <laughs> That's going to be a lot of fun. Out of this, like what I I, I keep from our conversation with, with Steph is how important culture is when we are dealing with data. And as we said during uh, our conversation with her, I think we are at the beginning of a tectonic move or change what is happening inside companies in terms of how they perceive data and their value. With a very good example that Steph gave about how growth is perceived even from the CFOs and how even the CFOs perception has changed and non-standard KPIs like retention and customer satisfaction is becoming like a leading KPI even for them. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to chat with her again in the next couple of months. AVO is growing really fast and I'm pretty sure that like in a couple of months from now we will have even more to learn from here and your team.
0: I agree. Well, thanks again for joining us on the Data Stack Show. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite uh, podcast tool to get notified of new episodes every week. We have some really, really exciting shows coming up in the next few weeks that you'll want to make sure to listen to. Until next time, catch you later.